Thank you for joining me for another episode of My Story Living with Lupus Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Hendricks, and I'm so glad that you could join me on this Friday, April 15th, 2022. Have you ever heard of gaslighting? I know you have, but have you heard of medical gaslighting? Well, women patients of color warn other patients about medical gaslighting. We'll be talking about that. Also, we'll be discussing um, mixed results for oral lupus drug in phase two. We'll finish off with that. And NASH patients are entitled to a Bill of Rights. Also, will prosecuting medical errors lead to a culture of science? And lastly, patients should know who's operating on them. So, you know what I want you to do all the way from the United States to Judental Cluj, Romania. Get ready to grab your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, and to my listeners late at night. You know I appreciate you. So go on, get ready to grab your favorite glass of wine. And come on and join the conversation right here on My Story, Living with Lupus Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on My Story, Living with Lupus Podcast, represents each person's individual experience. By listening to this podcast or reading our blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. As always, consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. My Story Living with Lucas podcast is officially trademarked, all rights reserved. Thank you for joining me today. And we're going to talk about medical gaslighting. Um, And you may be familiar, not with the, well, you probably are familiar with the term gaslighting. But what about medical gaslighting? Have you ever went to um, your doctor's office and you tell him what's wrong with you and then... He tells you, oh, it's all in your head. Or um, what about if you have fibromyalgia and your doctor says, oh, that's not a real illness. That's medical gaslighting. You know, one of the hardest parts 
about suffering from an invisible illness like lupus or fibromyalgia or fatigue, for example, it can be incredibly isolating. And alone, it can make you feel like you're all by yourself. This is due in part to the symptoms of most autoimmune and chronic illnesses, seeming insignificant to the medical world compared to the more evident issues they deal with. This truth is proven by the shocking fact that it takes four and a half or more years for a person suffering um, from a chronic illness to be diagnosed on average, okay? As the symptoms progress over time without being treated, the sufferers of chronic illnesses, um, it will begin to start creeping up slowly enough that it doesn't cause alarm to anyone around them, but just enough that your life will slowly start to fall apart both physically and mentally. Now, I know personally for myself, I've had a rheumatologist to tell me it was all in my head. And I sat there on the exam table and looked at him. And he asked me what was wrong. And I said, so what I'm feeling, you're telling me, is all in my head. I said, so the pain that I'm feeling, the fatigue that I'm feeling, the loss of hair that I'm seeing, the loss of weight that I'm experiencing, it's all in my head. He looked at me and said, yes. I looked at him and said, well, I won't be back since it's all in my head. I know it's not in my head because I feel the pain. I feel the fatigue. I see the loss of weight. I see the loss of my hair. So I walked out of the office in search of a new rheumatologist. I said to myself as I left out, I turned around and said, you may not be able to do anything for me, but God will put the physician who can do something for me in my path. I said, I won't be back. And I suggest you don't bill for this visit because I'm going to call the insurance company and tell them everything that you said, and I want the claim denied. And that's what I did, and that's what the insurance company did. They denied it. I was being medically gaslit. Now, this is something not new to women of color. 
Many women and people of color have been speaking out about the frustrating and dismissive experiences that they have been having with medical professionals. One common theme is that a person will visit a doctor or a medical professional complaining of some kind of physical symptom, and then their symptom will be dismissed as psychological, as all being in their head, or as being a result of their weight or the fact that they're out of shape, excuse me. And yes, I have been told this too. And in turn, I have told the doctor that due to my research on the medications that you prescribed me, the side effects of this medication is weight gain. And yes, I do work out, and the weight is still not coming off. And in turn, they tell me, I doubt it very seriously that you are working out. If you were working out, the weight would come off. Maybe you're overeating. No, I'm not overeating. It's the side effects of the medication that you have prescribed me. Medical gaslighting. People are describing these frustrating experiences at the doctor's offices as medical gaslighting One area where the problem of medical gaslighting is a huge issue is in the area of autoimmune diseases. So we know that almost 80% of autoimmune disease sufferers are women, and there hasn't been nearly enough research into how to diagnose some of these diseases and how to recognize their symptoms. As a result, a lot of women with autoimmune diseases say that when they have first gone to doctor's um, offices and spoke with doctors, their symptoms have been dismissed or doctors have said, it's just anxiety. Maybe you should go on an antidepressant, something like that. These experiences with medical gaslighting have been happening for a long time, even centuries, but no one has taken the time to pay attention to what we are saying until now. It has become an issue. A long time ago, women were told that their symptoms were a result of hysteria that had to do with problems with their uterus. That's right. You heard me correctly. 
with our uterus. And if it wasn't our uterus, it was our hormonal imbalance. Why not could it be frustration of no one paying attention to what we're saying about our bodies? Now, one reason why we might be hearing more about medical gaslighting is because of social media. Yes, social media is making it easier for women and people of color to share their experiences and their kind of a snowball effect where when one person starts talking about it, other people start sharing their experiences as well. So I think we're just hearing about these more. But these have been happening for a very long time. We're talking about medical gaslighting. Studies show that compared with men, women face longer wait times to be diagnosed with cancer and with heart disease, perhaps because their symptoms are initially misunderstood or dismiss. Women are also treated less aggressively for a number of conditions, including traumatic brain injury, and they're less likely than men to be prescribed pain medications when they're in pain. And, you know, I've spoken on this before, there is a myth in the medical um, industry that women of color can endure pain more than any other race. So that's why we are not prescribed pain medications right away. One study also found that women are twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with a mental illness when their symptoms are actually consistent with heart disease. We know from research that people of color often also receive poor quality medical care and doctors are more likely to describe black patients as uncooperative or non-compliant and research suggests that this can affect the quality of care that they receive. As for why this occurs, there are potentially many factors contributing to it. One key problem is that there hasn't been nearly as much research on women's body and female biology than there has been on men's body and male biology. Women can have very different symptoms than a man due for the same condition. One example being heart disease. So doctors may only be familiar with the male presentation of the disease and then misdiagnose a woman. This is in part 
because historic fears that have been excluded women from clinical studies. Now, in 1977, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, better known as the FDA, began recommending that scientists exclude women who are in childbearing years from early clinical studies. The fear was that if they were pregnant, then their fetuses might be harmed through exposure to new drugs. There were also some concerns about hormonal fluctuations that might mess up results. Of course, this means that women have not systematically for a long time been included in clinical studies. And that means that we know so much less about how their bodies work. This has since changed. Now, all NIH-funded research does require women to be included in trials, and there have to be considerations of sex as a biological variable. But the medical literature still very much skews towards male biology and how men present with different diseases. We need more and better funding for research on women's health and women's bodies, and especially women of color. A 2021 study found that in most cases, research on diseases that affect men are far more heavily funded than research on diseases that affect women. We also need to ensure that medical schools are spending enough curriculum time teaching medical students about women's health and about sex differences in how conditions can present. The stress and time constraints that doctors face also fuel biased decision-making. We know this from research. Studies have shown that when doctors are busy and stressed, as almost all of them are right now, they are more likely to make biased decisions that reflect unconscious biases. So one example might be assuming on some unconscious level that Black individuals have a higher pain threshold. This is a misconception that some people hold or that many women's health complaints might be rooted in psychological issues rather than physical issues. Because of these, well, because of the stress and time constraints that doctors experience and the fact that 
um, we know that this can contribute to biased decision-making. It would also be very helpful if doctors didn't have quite so much on their plate all the time. And if they were given more time with patients so they don't feel rushed to make a diagnostic decision. Could this also be why when women of color and men of color go to the ER, here's that bias again, um, that they think all we're in there for is pain meds? Could that be a problem too? Or is there an issue when it comes to finding a cure for autoimmune diseases such as lupus that there are not enough women of color along with men of color because you feel that um, based on us being women of color is that it's all in our head or due to our hormones or even due to our uterus that we would not um, be good at a clinical trial. And you know, I don't know why, especially I'm not saying all, but some male doctors think that women in general are hysterical beings who over-exaggerate the symptoms. But one thing we do know, doctors, we do know our body. We do know what we are feeling. There needs to be more funding um, on women's health and stop relying on the signs and the symptoms of the male counterparts who are in these trials or um, going through testing. All diseases is, um, I shouldn't say disease because I hate that word, all illnesses are not a one-size-fits-all. Just like when you go to the doctor and um, I'll give you an example. I was reading um, some of my medical reports in my patient portal. And one of the questions um, on there, how did the patient look? Obese. I'm not obese. You know, obese may be 250, 300 and on up. I'm far from that. But the doctor put on there, obese. I stated to the doctor, they asked me to drink um, alcohol. I said, no, I never had a a drink of alcohol in all of my life. So the doctor put on there, 
patient denies drinking alcohol. Um, I take offense to the way he, he stated it on the form. All you asked me, did I ever drink alcohol? And I said, no, I have never had alcohol, never did any street drugs. The only drugs I do are the ones prescribed to you, by you, I'm sorry, by um, a medical professional. Those are the only drugs I, I take. But see, they have a perception that, well, I don't know whether to believe you or not. And like this study says in MedPage today, this has been going on for a very, very long time. We can sit up and complain to the doctor, look, I'm still having this. And I keep telling you about it, but you're overlooking it. Why are you overlooking it? They won't believe it until the condition um, gets worse and your health starts to decline. And then that's when they'll do something for you. But think about it. We as women of color, being patients of color, have been saying this for the longest. We are the ones who have been medically gaslit the longest. We are the ones who have been receiving um, poor treatment and poor care because doctors fail to believe us. We are the ones who um, the medical field believes they can endure pain much longer than any other race. Be for real. We, like I said, we have been going through this for the longest. And most doctors wonder why um, we are, are, I don't want to say combative, but we will question you on every little thing you do to us and then you will put on your records patient non-compliant to what you are saying and that enters a mistrust um in the african-american community regarding the medical field because you won't listen and you are very dismissive of patients of color. When we get back, we'll be finishing up on the mixed results for oral lupus drug phase study. It would be the last part of the study. So stay with me. Thank you for rejoining me. Now we're getting ready to finish up on mixed results for oral lupus drug in phase two. Mid-stage study offers hope, but also 
Reason for Caution. In the completion of this study, um, we left off. We're going to review it. Um, Karen Kostenbader, MD, MPH of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, highlighted these apparent side effects, along with other results, as red flags that should temper enthusiasm for the possibility of an oral drug for lupus. Besides the increased risk for infections, immune deficiencies, she pointed to a lack of benefit in a number of secondary endpoints and what she termed a high incidence of treatment discontinuation. The study further stated that um, only one case, one case, each of brainstem infarction and deep vein thrombosis were seen among recipients and none had pulmonary embolism or myocardial infarction versus one DVT and one PE with placebo. The further the study further concluded that study participants were adults meeting American College of Rheumatology criteria for lupus. Baseline SLEDAI-2K scores of at least six were required, including scores of at least four based solely on clinical parameters. Patients also had to show anti-nuclear antibody titers of at least 140 with seropositivity for anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies or anti-Smith antibodies. Among the exclusion criteria were active lupus nephritis or neuropsychiatric manifestations, as well as the presence of antiphospholipid antibodies or other risk factors for thrombosis. Mean SLEDAI-2K score at baseline was 9.6. About half the sample had acute lupus. Some 30% had the chronic form, and 16% were classed as subacute. Patients were generally in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and nearly all were women. More than 40% were from Mexico. The only downfall I see to this study was that the study did not indicate the ethnicity of the women in the study or the socioeconomic background. Do you know what NASH is? Well, NASH is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. That's right. Patients with 
non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, better known as NASH, have the right to expect certain multidisciplinary treatments that clinicians should be aware of. A patient advocacy group stated, keeping in character um, about these rights, they placed them on a scroll, which included that patients with NASH receive best care and treatment possible, take as much time as necessary with healthcare team, ask physicians for a specialist referral or second opinion, partner with the doctor to create a multidisciplinary team, expect ongoing coordination of care. These rights, among others, were the results of a NASH roundtable. Um, they shared antidote about a patient who said they got more information from their patient support group on Facebook than from their own physician. Um, the patient also discussed the stigma associated with the liver disease, particularly um, the assumption that anyone with the disease drinks too much alcohol. Now, um, it is also known as fatty liver disease. Now, we're going to be talking about medical errors. Will prosecuting medical errors lead to a culture of science? Not science, silence. Um, I think that it could. Um, you know, medical errors are one of the main causes of death and lawsuits in the medical field. And I'm looking at now what was reported in MedPage today where some healthcare workers are fearful of repercussions from not being silent regarding medical errors. Here's what it states. Um, healthcare workers are alarmed by the conviction of former Nashville nurse Redonda Vault, who now faces prison time over a medical error. We could all and probably have been close to this situation because we're continuously stretched too thin, a nurse stated in an ICU. She was an ICU nurse. We try so hard to do the best by our patients while the odds are stacked against us. 
Jeremy Foss, MD, MedPage Today's Editor-in-Chief, stated in an Inside Medicine post that the verdict may contribute to a culture of silence around medical errors. When we come back, we'll finish up. So stay with me. Dr. Foss further stated such silence may make systemic problems less readily identified and rectified. This is the opposite of what we need. We need to destigmatize human errors, acknowledge them, and learn from them. Nurse Fault was convicted of negligent homicide and gross neglect of an impaired adult. The patient was 75 years old. Instead of giving the patient the anti-anxiety drug Versed, she was given another medication. Um, Volt, Nurse Volt, I'm sorry, had been acquitted of a reckless homicide charge. Volt faces one to two years in prison for the negligent homicide charge and three to six years on the gross neglect charge, according to Kaiser Health News. Her sentencing is scheduled for May 13th. Now, typically, serious medical errors are handled by licensing boards or civil courts, not prosecutors. The American Nurses Association stated in a statement that the criminalization of medical errors could have a chilling effect on reporting and process improvements. Fortunately, the mistake was immediately recognized and the patient suffered no immediate long-term consequences, Dr. Foss stated. In fact, the patient was informed as to what was happening in real time, given a play-by-play narration of what had just happened and what would happen next, which included giving um, the reverse drug to combat the effects. The nurse who made the mistake was experienced, respected, and every bit as caring as the um, as the very best healthcare colleagues that I have worked with. Um, let's see over the years. Um, In other words, this was not some green, distracted, or emotionally detached bad apple. 
and Dr. Fossmine, all of that added up to one thing. This could have happened to anyone. If honest errors led to criminal convictions, every incentive will be to sweep things under the rug. If we don't learn from both our successes and our failures, things will get worse, not better. What are your thoughts on medical errors? Like I said, at one point in time, and it still may be one of the leading causes of death and lawsuits for most doctors and most facilities. Now, do you think patients should know who exactly is operating on them? I think you should, because that is one of the first questions that I asked um, before any surgeries. And you may say, well, once they put you under, you don't know who's operating on you for sure. And that is a good point. You don't know. But I can tell you this. Um, I had an operation and they put me under and but they did not put me under all the way um they made a little mistake in the dosage that they gave me of anesthesia and um they were talking what i heard they were talking and um I had opened my eyes slightly and seen where the doctor's assistant was operating on me and the part of my body that he was operating on was my arm. And they were just joking around, playing music. And um, the doctor, the surgeon, see where my eyes were halfway open and so he took it upon himself to go a uh, boo 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 I said okay I said to myself I said they don't know that they don't have me all the way under so I'm gonna just be like I'm out of it and wait to my follow-up appointment and so I did and the doctor you know said oh you did good in surgery I said did I and he said, yes. And I said, oh, okay, that's good. And he said, um, there's no need to uh, come back. And I said, okay, that's it. And he said, yes. I said, but before you leave out the room, let me tell you this, doctor. I know it was not you who was doing the surgery. It was your assistant. He stopped at the door and looked. So I said, a booga wooga 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 wooga. And he looked and his mouth dropped. I said, I was awake. I said, you had my arm numbed up, but you did not have me all the way out. I can repeat everything you guys were doing. 
the nurses, the anesthesiologists, and everything. So, you're right. When they put you under, you don't know who's doing what to you. But just so happened. It was his assistant who was doing the actual procedure. So doctors should disclose who will be operating on you. Now, when I went in for my biopsy, um, I flat out asked the doctor, who's going to do the biopsy? Is it you or is it a student? I say, I don't want a student working on me. And he said, no, 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 no. It's it's going to be me. I said, okay. And they rolled me into the operating room. And, I, and they were saying, okay, Miss Hendricks, we're getting ready to um, give you the anesthesia. I said, oh, no, you're not. I said, you don't give me anything until I see the doctor walk in here. And I said, and if he has somebody else with him, I don't want the procedure done. And they said, well, the doctor's on his way. I said, okay, I sat up on the table. I said, I'll wait, and so will you. I said, when he walks in here, and he's by himself. That's when you knock me out. But until then, I'm not getting knocked out. And I sat up on the table and they called for the doctor to come in and said she she refuses to um, let us put her under until you come in. And um, I told the doctor. I'm going to tell you again, like I told you in your office, I don't want an ex- a, um, intern or a student working on me. I want you to do the procedure. He said, no, no, I'm going to do the procedure. I'm here. I said, um, I want to make sure. And I said, then I'll lay down so that they can administer the anesthesia. And he said, no, 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 I'm here. So they um, administered the anesthesia. And they kept saying, Miss Hendricks, Miss Hendricks. And I kept saying, you didn't give me enough. You didn't give me enough. I'm still awake. And I got my eyes open to see. Who else comes through that door? If a student comes through that door, you're not doing anything on me. And the doctor uh, told me, said, no, Miss Hendricks, I'm here. I'm here. I said, okay. And so they fully knocked me out. Now, but in a report done by MedPage, an article, I should say, it states patients should know who's operating. Surgeons say doctors should disclose when trainees will the knife, especially if they plan to leave the room. And see, this is another thing. Why would you leave the room? I don't care <laughs> what else goes on. Don't go get any 
coffee. Don't go and get a bag of chips or or nothing. Stay in that room. Um, if you have somebody else in there with you, that leaving out and nipping arteries and can't stop the bleeding, and you're someplace else. Oh no, that that does not work. Um, the article states when. Carissa McAllister, MD, was learning to remove cataracts. She trained under some cranky doctors who didn't hesitate to bark critiques. But a few of her supervisors maintained a purposeful silence, soundlessly mouthing their words. It was obvious that they wanted to conceal from the patient awake under local anesthesia that the instruments had changed hands. McAllister found the experience disturbing. She recalled in an essay in the New England Journal of Medicine, she coined a term for the practice, the silent switch. The silent switch seemed to violate the bond of trust between patients and their doctors. McAllister wrote, it's very difficult being in a serenio where you feel like perhaps the patient doesn't necessarily fully know McAllister, who is now an ophthalmologist at Kirchner, Ontario, and a professor at McMaster University, informed MedPage today, it makes you uncomfortable. So it's something that kind of stayed with me. McAllister experience is far from unique. Experts say that many surgeons at teaching hospitals, possibly even the majority, do not explicitly tell their patients when trainees will be holding the scalpel. And a more egregious kind of deception can occur when a surgeon leaves an anesthetized patient completely in a junior doctor's hands and moves to another room to begin a new operation. After a 2015 expose of surgical double booking in the Boston Globe, the American College of Surgeons, better known as ACS, updated its guidelines to clarify that concurrent or simultaneous surgeries in which a lead surgeon manages the critical components of two procedures at once are inappropriate, whereas overlapping surgeries in which the critical components are staggered are acceptable. Still patients are supposed to be 
notified. When surgeries overlap, for instance, when a trainee sews up the incision while their supervisor starts a new procedure in another room. But a U.S. Senate Finance Committee report released in 2016 found that doesn't always happen. For the average hospital that does simultaneous surgery or the average doctor who does it, it's an um, an efficient, oh gosh, excuse me, efficient use of their time. So they really don't want to change it, said orthopedic surgeon James Rickard, MD, president of the Society for Patient Center Orthopedics, who is on the clinical faculty at Indiana University School of Medicine. I just think it's much easier to use language that's a little bit more oblique. The federal government has increased its scrutiny of hospitals that in the quest for profits. Now, these hospitals routinely double and triple book top surgeons. In February, Massachusetts General Hospital agreed to a $14.6 million settlement that included a commitment to revise its patients' consent forms to clearly explain that the head surgeon may not always be present. And increasingly, surgeons themselves are urging their colleagues to be more transparent. This article further states its vulnerable point in everybody's existence that has to have surgery. And that's where they think disclosure is even more important. The surgeons who urge more transparency say they are motivated by an ethical imperative not to hide anything from patients and not by safety concerns. So the next time you have surgery, you check out that consent form and see exactly what is stated in there and see if it states that the primary surgeon may not be present while the surgery is being performed. You can read the um, complete article dated April the 5th, 2022. In Met Page today, when I return, we'll be closing out. So please be kind and stay with me.
it's that time. It's time for me to go. But before I go, I want to ask you a favor. If this podcast has given you any information that is helpful, please go and review my podcast, like my podcast, and follow my podcast on your favorite podcast station. I want to leave you with just food for thought. Quality is not an act. It is a habit. Aristotle. I want you to have a most safe, peaceful, and oh so blessed weekend. Next week I go in for some treatments and hopefully I will be able to record video record the treatments that I am having. So, until next week, I'll talk to you then. And a quick hello to Charles, if you're listening. Don't forget to go over and um, review, like, and follow on your favorite podcast station also. You can go over if you have missed any of the episodes. They are on YouTube. Please like and follow me on YouTube also on Instagram. My story, Living with Lupus. I'll talk to you next week. Be safe.